Number five, thou shalt not expect a perfect match. And I know I'm speaking to a mature audience and it's not meant in any condescending way. Who I marry is not nearly as important as how I respect myself and others. And I'll say it again. The person I marry is not nearly as important as how I respect that person. Less important than finding the right person is focusing on whoever it is that I commit to, I have already committed total respect, total giving, loving, appreciation, and when differences come up, not if, when differences come up between us, I'm totally committed to working them out respectfully, without anger. And if I do fall into anger, if I do fall into any feelings of bitterness, I'm committed to getting out of it as fast as possible and talking about it as respectfully as possible, as close as possible to my lack of respect. And I'll say it again. Who I marry is not as important as how I treat whoever I'm going to be married to. Because if I find the perfect match, let's just play for a moment in our imagination. And I find a person who is, the chemistry is all there and we're going to get to that in a few moments. Physical attraction. And they've got all the virtues there. Jewish. And they're into personal growth. They have spiritual values that they want to deepen and explore more. They have a concept of commitment in a marriage. They want to be loving and sensitive. And I noticed that whenever we've dated, that person has patience, demonstrates love, appreciation, gratitude, sensitivity, kindness, consideration, respect, loyalty, trust. The whole gamut. And you're saying to yourself, this is it. This is it. I mean, you know, and to add to it all, great family, financially secure, excellent health, wonderful mother-in-law, I mean father-in-law. <laughs> and you know, it's just everything is there. So there's nothing holding back saying, I do want to marry you too. So let's just assume that we found Miss Perfect, Mr. Perfect. Do we know, based on what's in front of us now, how that person could change because some event could happen? It could be a child being born and the reality of it being so far from what they expected that they respond totally differently than your expectation and even theirs. Is it possible that even with all the variables that are in place now, that they could lose their job from a company that suddenly went and got downsized or bankrupt and one of the many virtues you were attracted to was their staying power, the security, the fact that they had held this position and grown so high in the corporate ladder of this company for so long and it didn't disappoint you when they lost their job as much as them falling into depression but wait a minute, you were so upbeat you're so like, positive so, and there were so many, I don't, why are you so, get up from bed why six months after you lost your job, why don't you get up now, what's the matter with you? is it possible that we have no real control over how people will change according to variables that we have no control over. So what's going to count more? Who we marry? Or how we handle the differences that come up? Who we marry? Or how we're going to be loving and respectful no matter what? Who we marry? Or how well we manage the difficulties? Whether it be a financial setback? What happens, God forbid? Commitment all the way. And what happens? Three months after the marriage, a fatal accident leaves them crippled. God forbid. No one asks for it. The question is what is going to count who we married or how we manage the differences, how we are married to whoever it is we're going to marry. The 
piece I'm bringing out here is the immeasurably less important, less deserving of focus than who we marry that we've been looking for. Less important than that person that we've been looking for is who am I going to be in giving to whoever it is I marry. No matter what we go through. That is the real measure of what's going to be lasting in any relationship more than who it is and what they bring to the table. I could marry a woman who I'm specifically attracted amongst many other virtues to just the fact she's a very lively, vivacious, happy, go-lucky, easygoing, upbeat, very positive and picks herself up from every down that I've ever seen her go through and her father passes away a year into the marriage and she falls into a depression and I say to her Darling, I don't understand. You didn't even have a relationship with your father. He never spoke to you. Why why are you depressed? You never even had a, a communication with the man. And she says, I don't think you understand. I did not realize how much I really craved to have a father in my life till he was no longer there. And then I realized the fact that I had turned off while I was maybe 13 from ever wanting to communicate with that man is not because I hated him. It's because I was so fearful of the pain of rejection, of hoping and expecting that one day I would have a relationship with him that for my security and my own sake I stopped expecting. But the, when he died, I suddenly realized I wished I had had a healing relationship in the years that I was mature and that's why I'm depressed. Is it possible that someone who's been consistently upbeat, endured challenges and got beyond and became strong for it does not equal how they're going to be in an untold new variable that might come into between us. So what counts? Who we marry or how we manage the difficulties that come between us in the marriage. Marriage is what we're looking for more than who it is we marry. So number five we said thou shalt not expect a perfect match means exactly that. It's not about what the other person scores in the dating process on the scale of 0 to 10. On all those items that we've been listing again and again and again, that's not the real measure of how this marriage is going to be. Because even if we check that all off, what's really going to count is how confident and how strongly committed we are to being there for that person, for being there for ourselves and for that person, no matter what. No matter the medical setbacks, God forbid, financial setbacks, God forbid, the disappointments in raising these kids and expecting them to go in a certain direction and they don't. And we don't always agree on how to raise them, but less important than your point of view in where to live, your point of view in how to raise this kid, your point of view of career change, less important than that, and it is important, but less important than that. I'm not saying it right. L- more important than how you feel and think about raising this kid than I do. How you feel about the marriage than your spouse. How you feel about where to live than your spouse. More important than that is how respectful we are about that difference. How less sharp we are in our exchange, how gracious we are in our listening, and how good we are in communicating honestly without fear of anger, and how good we are about just listening, and if they are angry back, talk about it later when the emotions are not high, and when I'm not upset about your anger.
How we manage the differences is the real measure. That's why in Hebrew the word Shalom is so beautiful, Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. The word Shalom does not mean peace in the sense that two people are similar and have less differences and more similarities. The word Shalom means bringing together opposite forces. He makes peace above in heaven. Why in heaven? Says Rashi, right at the beginning of Genesis, God created heaven, Shamayim, from two opposing forces, Aish and Mayim, fire and water. Fire and water were forged together to create synergy of heaven. So comes along Rashi and tells us, you know what peace is? Peace is bringing opposites together and not changing them so that the fire cools down and the water gets warm. No! We're not talking about compromise. That's a rude word in America. Who wants to compromise who they are? Who wants to have to be less than? And who wants to cut down on and not be real? Peace means being who I am and you're still respecting me even though you disagree. Even though you hold a completely different position. That is hard work. That is what peace really is. And that's why Shalom Bayit, peace in the home, refers to different personalities, conflicting, but what's going to count is not how different we are, it's how we respectfully communicate the differences. It's not how far apart we are, it's how well we bridge it because we're respectful of each other's different positions. It's not how successful I am in changing the other person, it's how successful I am in conquering my own anger, my own impatience, my own frustration that's going to allow you to want to continue the relationship even though we don't necessarily hold the same position. But because we're respectful, we're far more likely to find a solution that will work than if we are hurt by the intensity of the communication, the sharp words, the list and printout of crimes that you have committed against me and I've committed against you, and the long-term memory of all the mistakes I've made that supports your proof for why I'm wrong and you're right. That is not going to work and it never has in the history of mankind in changing another person except through fear or manipulation but that's not real change real change is appreciation and respect even with the differences and one is not necessarily a contradiction to the other Pirke Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 4, paragraph 1 has the statement Who is the one that gets the most honor, the one who gets the most appreciation? And the answer is, the one who gives the most appreciation to others. When we give appreciation, even if there's differences, that is investing in getting along even though we're different. It's not who we marry, it's how we are married to whoever we marry that's going to count. Lastly, on this commandment number five, and I realize I'm hitting overtime already, and I respect anyone who needs to leave because they've got a different appointment or a date to go to. <laughs> the same ethics of our fathers tells us, make for yourself a rav, a rav, make for yourself a teacher, a guide, acquire, be willing to spend money if necessary in a friendship, and judge everyone favorably. Three-point formula. The question asked is, what is the connection between the three? And the answer given is the following. If I'm looking for perfection in leadership, I'm looking for perfection in a teacher or a rabbi that will never make a mistake or be insensitive or be a perfect role model without flaw, I'm going to be looking for a long time. 
be willing to pay money to invest in a friendship if I'm looking for a friendship that is never going to let me down never betray me never make a mistake never mistrust never do anything that demonstrates an act of disloyalty if I'm looking for a friend that will never let me down I'm going to be looking for a long time so ends off the mission of have it done it cold judge everyone favorably because without number three I'm never going to find people that I can look up to as role models and I will not find peers that I can grow with because if I'm going to be too exacting for perfection I have ruled out being part of society I've ruled out close intimacy I've ruled out marriage I've ruled out intimacy with my children number six I'm gonna start moving fast thou shalt be a righteous individual a tzaddik on every date be righteous in every date that means being gracious forgiving looking for a favorable judgment for something which looks like a mistake if they do something that's insensitive don't ignore it shelve it put it in long-term memory but be gracious continue smiling and if it really bothers you at the end of the date and you would consider a second date ask for clarification a very important mitzvah which needs and deserves to be discussed but unfortunately we don't have the time the mitzvah of clarity the mitzvah of clarifying between people it's a mitzvah which is very interestingly located in the Torah where the Torah says you shall not have hatred in your heart towards another person and one line later says love your neighbor as yourself now if I was God or forgive me if I was if I was consulting with God when he wrote the Torah I would say no wait do me a favor God please don't have hatred in your heart could you put that at the beginning of Genesis and love your neighbor as yourself put at the end of Deuteronomy and give me some time to recover why do you put them one line next to another I mean one second you tell me I'm not allowed to have hatred to another person who's really wronged me and the next line you tell me to love them I'm not a machine you could just turn knobs on hate love on off I'm a real person how do you switch from hatred to love and the answer is look for the words in between and it says clarify differences with your friend and if I can't clarify without anger I have no mitzvah no instruction to clarify because I'm not capable I haven't reached the emotional maturity to deal with differences as an adult if I haven't learned to talk about the differences without anger without throwing anger grenades angry grenades and if I haven't learned to get a PhD in apology then I'm going to get hurt each time a difference comes between us and I haven't got the ability to talk about it by asking you why without getting angry so it comes along thou shalt be at tzaddik on every date look for a reason even if you have to imagine it for why this person might be frustrated or less sensitive maybe it has nothing to do with me it might not be personal at all if only I knew what went on in their workload today maybe I would understand differently and if I'm less personalized about it at a later moment or time ask them I noticed that you were more sensitive or uptight than usual did something happen during the day that made you feel so much more nervous more tension and give them the opportunity to apologize defend or explain being a tzaddik on every date means being fascinated interested appreciative emotionally honest being patient even though you don't always like what you hear and part two of the same number six thou shalt be righteous in your dates is smiling smile all the time not because you're putting on a smile the smile is the real you and me the smile is a reflection of the happiness that we already have that we might not always be 
enjoying until we break our legs on that ski jump or we lose eyesight, God forbid, from a bad surgery and then we start to appreciate what we already had all along and it was there to appreciate all along. Smiling is about enjoying the other person's presence and when I smile I'm giving you something that doesn't belong to me! My face does not belong to me! And the proof is, I can't see it. God gave it to me to give to you. Now it's true we have mirrors but really the smile does not, was not invented for mirrors. God gave us our faces for other people to enjoy. Our smile belongs to the other person. When we smile we are saying a very powerful message. It's the most powerful message. I enjoy giving away my greatest asset. My life. My time. I'm giving away half an hour, an hour and a half. Three hours of this day. I'm giving three hours away of my most precious asset my life and I'm enjoying it in your presence a smile says I enjoy being in your presence even if you're hating every moment <laughs> when you get back home and you open up your journal and you put in the one line of clarity or 100 lines of clarity that you got from the date tonight that line of clarity will make the date the most valuable one you've been on so even if you're smiling for what you're going to write later on and what you've learned about who doesn't work for you it's still a reason to smile no reason for any date to walk away feeling that they weren't liked, respected or enjoyed even if the answer is no I'm not meeting you again let the experience be one that is a memorable pleasurable one number seven thou shalt not look at Calvin Klein ads don't believe the media's definition of love it's all plastic and coming from a profession of advertising my father is a famous actor in England he worked many times in the commercials and employed me in his services in voiceovers for various commercials and I'm not going to give you tonight example of that if you want to buy from any of the tapes there's a few examples there some of you have heard them already enough times but to share with you the following advertising agencies began about 40-50 years ago with a policy which is absolutely incredibly successful in penetrating the mind of almost every western individual incredible through the power of the media, radio, television, commercials, advertisements, still photos in magazines, there's been an unwritten policy essentially to educate the consumer to associate the deepest cravings for appreciation, for being loved, for being respected, for feeling successful, for having pleasure in life, for having meaning in life. The deepest cravings have been wired in our minds and emotions to be associated to products and lifestyle. And even though we as a mature adult audience hold PhDs, MDs, MAs, bachelors and masters degrees and we're intelligent, individual, thinking, rational people why are advertising agencies so confident that people will buy their products that they are investing billions billions and billions of dollars into their commercials and the answer is how many commercials has the average American child seen before the age of 10? 250,000 commercials the idea again this is the unwritten policy and I'm sharing this for I'm going to get killed if they find out. Saatchi and Saatchi, when I worked with them, when asked, do you really think people buy your products because of your commercials? Do you think people are so shallow that they're going to associate buying Pepsi to Michael Jackson? You remember the Michael Jackson Pepsi commercial? Yeah? Do you really think that people are going to think they're going to get financial security, baby? Smoking Marlboro. <laughs> the cowboy image. 
You really think that? Do you really think that a woman is going to be catapulted into this man's eye, uh, arms because he's smoking Newport alive with pleasure? And a woman's been catapulted into his arms. Do you really believe that? And you know what their answer is? We don't care. <laughs> if you don't buy our product because of our commercial, because you will anyway. How do you know? And their answer is because they've wired up the minds of children to associate the deepest cravings to products and lifestyle. Don't believe the ads because they're selling a plastic image of love, a plastic image of success, a plastic image of pleasure, a plastic image of meaning. And therefore what we're talking about here is look for the real image of God in the person, the virtues, qualities that are the real ingredients of a long-term relationship. It's not the PhD, the financial security, the corporate position. It's not the admiration, fame or recognition that will make the relationship work. If anything, if the statistics are correct, the one profession in the world where people get the most admiration, recognition, validation for being who they are not are actors and actresses. And they're in and out of relationships, marriages, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. It's far, far, far from reality. Number eight, thou shalt not focus on the external image of your date, but what about chemistry? And I'll answer that very briefly. Yes, I know all about looking at the quality of the person inside, but I still have to be turned on. I have to be physically aroused and attracted to that person. And the answer is, unless they are terribly ugly, <laughs> if they have chen, chen means a special connection that's invisible. If they are minimally attractive outwardly, give the chance for the beauty on the inside to surface and be manifest because the outward beauty will grow on you. How many actresses and even actors are not the most beautiful, handsome, but portray themselves as beautiful people and you fall in love with the character. How many times we watched a movie for nothing more than an hour and a half and we fell in love with a personality and when I say fell in love I don't mean in a shallow way, we fell in love with the personality, the character in the film, in the movie we related to the part they played and it was unrelated to image on the outside. It had everything to do with what they went through, how they changed, who they became, how they got beyond the challenge, and the physical attributes were meaningless by the time we got used to what we had seen them go through and accomplish in an hour and a half. Is it possible that in the real movie of life, given half a chance, a fraction of a chance that we give a liar on screen, a paid liar on screen, and I say it graciously, is it possible that if we give a fraction of a chance to real people in real dating to have a story way deeper than what we see on the surface that were we to have some access to will totally cho change our appreciation, sensitivity, empathy, kindliness, generosity and perhaps even love. So number eight was thou shalt not focus on the external image of your date if there's sufficient chain, a connection, a grace in their facial features, in their bodily contours that you can say I'll give the internal image a chance to surface that can change my entire feelings towards being physically close to this person. And number nine, for clarity and help, call 1-800-ALMIGHTY.
I'm coming home after 487 dates. Give me clarity. I'm going mad. Help me. That instead of becoming more senile, I become more clear about who I am and what I'm looking for. How to get more out of the date by asking better questions because I'm more focused on what I'm looking for to give pleasure and get answers that reflect what they love the most to be appreciative, considerate, help me to notice the many opportunities I have to listen, love, appreciate, be grateful, considerate, sensitive that will then create in their mind value for who I am that I'm selling myself, not with manipulation, I'm selling the person I am becoming because I'm investing in my emotional IQ, in my midot tavot, in my positive traits. Help me thereby help them see who I really am. And that will help bring them out of themselves more and feel they want to connect more so that I get to see their true selves more so that I essentially am going to grow in the dating process instead of just counting how many dates I've been on. The Gemara Brachas, page 32b, tells us Kave el Hashem, chazek v'yamets libecha ve'kave el Hashem The word kave does not mean hope, it means expect. Give up hope! And expect God to come through. Give up hope of finding the right date and expect to find the right date by planning to notice the virtues that are the real ingredients in a long-term relationship and optimize, maximize, expose them more and more and more. And number 10, finally, of the Ten Commandments of Dating, Thou shalt not give up. No matter what, know that your zivug, that one's true partner, is out there. The Talmud tells us in Moed Katan, I think it's on page 18b, that there's a bat call, there's a heavenly echo that comes out every day and screams out the name of so-and-so is destined to marry so-and-so. One of the Talmudic sages asks the obvious question, what is the special extra information the Talmud is imparting to us by telling us that this bat call, this heavenly voice, makes this announcement every day? Why just, just say it once? Why does it have to be every day? And the answer they give is because I should never think that just because I have dated hundreds of thousands of times that there's reason to give up. No, the bat call, this heavenly voice comes out every day to remind us he, she is still there working on themselves, readying themselves, preparing themselves, training themselves for us as we are training ourselves for them. The Zohar tells us, page 229 in section of Genesis, that God decrees the exact moment that a person is to be wed. And that decree was made before the two halves of this soul were born into this world. Never give up hope because they are there. Instead give up hope and replace it with expectation. Expecting that God will pull through and that by me searching for the divine virtues, the godly image in every person, the right in every potential right partner, I will break through and find that person. Thank you for your patience. Any questions? Yes ma'am. I was too late unfortunately, but just can you just, you don't have to go to the whole one and two. Thou shalt remember the purpose of dating, but that's only a headline. You really need to get the, the full thing, which you can uh, get on the tape. And number two, thou shalt learn one lesson about oneself from each date. Yeah. There's um, not enough questions that you were referring to.
Right. Do you suggest just coming out saying what are you passionate about in life, things like that, or could you mean a more subtle way to get there? You know what? You'll judge by the person. If they're very open type of a person and they're, they're very free and easy about direct questions, then you can go the fast lane. If if you feel this is a person that you know, that you know le you less, you've known for less time, uh, that they might be more sensitive or putting up barriers until they feel more free and easy, then I would go with the subtle route. Yeah. So, yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Right. Okay, so for example, let's say I notice that a person I'm speaking to on a date, that uh, the way I answered a question which was asked sincerely, I answered with a, a touch of anger in my voice. And noticing that, being aware of that, I realize afterwards, you know what that was about? She was asking me, he was asking me about my financial responsibility. And because I'm very sensitive about that area, I know that I've made a lot of boobs, a lot of mistakes, that instead of be, being either honest or in a nice way moving on to something else, I allowed my own frustration of where I am in finances to, to give a little tint, tint of anger to stop the intimacy right there, which is what real anger is about. Anger, whether it's subtle or whether it's decibels, is bottom line, the Hasidic works tell us, is a deliberate choice to avoid intimacy. So where I would demonstrate, for example, a, a subtlety of anger in a date is really for me to notice me and turn that around. And maybe if there's a second chance with that person, bring up the subject myself and talk about how I noticed that question triggered off a, an item which is of, of great sensitivity to me, to me, to me, sensitivity to me, because I'm working on my financial responsibility, being that I've made a number of investments or mistakes which are really, really ridiculous or foolish. But you know something? I'm hoping that these mistakes are really the foundation of much greater clarity and therefore success later on. That's, uh, I mean, there are many, many different examples. Let's just uh, throwing out one. Yeah. Yes, sir. The question that you have is, you said if the person is not so attractive and you want to find the thing. Right. You find the middle to what? Right. Okay. But what happened after a few times, still you're going to have if you If you have made a very serious effort to connect to the person on their virtues internally, and you're not necessarily impressed, they're not uh, scoring very well on your score sheet of virtues, so God has wired you and me in such a way that we're not going to feel connected. So, so oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your question. Your question is, you're finding the virtues, but you're still not getting physically attracted to the person. Well, feeling physically attracted. I asked this question to the Manchur Shiva, Rabbi Segel Hatzal, who was known as one of the 36 tzaddikim of the, of the world of the past generation, lived in Manchester, a very special personality. And I asked him this question about, um, about the dating process. And his answer to me was, if you see minimal heim, this connection, on a physical level, even though you're not, you've seen a lot of others, um, a lot better, and they don't even have to be beauty queens to, to do better than this one, right? If the virtues are there and you checked off what you're looking for internally, marry that person because their physical beauty will grow on you. That was his answer to me. Yeah. Are there certain topics that you consider off limits like somebody's past dating history or something along those lines? In terms of asking them or are you telling them? them? Right. Question. Is, is, is there a guideline of what's called off-limit demarcation line of what not to ask about people's uh, experiences in the past with, with dating? I think it's a fair assumption to assume that they don't want to tread in that direction unless they invite you to go that direction. Or you notice by their forwardness um, in them speaking about past dates that, that they're easy to talk about and open up on that. I would suggest, however, that 
you will probably learn more about them by exploring what they like and what they love and what they have the most pleasure from in their lives and connecting on that than, uh, than if one chooses that direction as one of the early stages in the dating. Certainly, if the dating is going well and you've met a number of times and we're getting more and more comfortable, uh, less barriers, and more honest emotionally uh, about what we like and dislike, what we feel, what, we, what, what uh, hurts us, what we're irritated by, what we've gone through in the past, what, we, what we've suffered and pains. The more open two people get, certainly uh, you can tread more in that direction. Yeah. So at the back. Intimacy. intimacy. Yeah. Um, I've also seen anger associated with the closing power of passion. That passionate people tend to anger easily. And do you see that association? Do you, in terms of meeting someone else and dating, that the lack of passion creates the le- fewer conflicts? with the other individual, but yet can also... Um, mean less communication. Less, less passion. Right, that's very possible. That's very possible. But I would still venture to suggest that if you can help uh, them identify what they are passionate about, you will start to see them talking excitedly. Their heartbeat, their facial expressions uh, will change because you've touched on what they like. and. Everyone craves appreciation and a very big chapter of that heading craving appreciation is when someone opens up the book of you and wants to read your favorite chapters. And it, it gets you excited. You connect, they'll feel connected to you on a different level. So I think there's still a way to find out their passion. Yeah. So. If I might understand your, your question correctly and, and help tell me if I'm accurate, um, how do I start talking to a person on a date either about help that I've received that's helped me, professional help, therapy of different types, um, in building my character and my inner strength, or how do I approach knowing or finding out that they've been involved uh, in being helped on a professional basis. Is that your question? Yeah. Right. Essentially, I would tell you like this. Um, The purpose of getting clarity, help from anyone, be they professional or a confidant, a very close friend who's understanding and intuitive and insightful, is essentially, I'm looking to grow. I'm, I want to be honest and open and real about my mistakes and my strengths and my weaknesses. And that by employing your services, be it a friend, be it a professional, um, I, I want to learn how to get stronger, whether it's finances, whether it's my health, whether it's my ability to say yes, my ability to say no, whether it's my uh, standing up to my boss, whether it's being able to say what I really feel uh, and be articulate without anger, uh, whether it's um, turning away from my past and instead of thinking that I'm a victim of what I've been through with my parents and my uh, past experiences in work or the way I was treated in my p- previous marriage uh, and letting go of that moving forward uh, I would tell you like this if you, are, if you are emotionally honest and sincere and you're about personal growth and that you're not trying to uh, hide then the person you open up to will probably feel that they're dealing with someone that they can communicate, listen to, and, and, and uh, be trusting and accepting of because of your emotional honesty. If you're going to open up like details um, and things about the past which uh, you're still working through and there's obvious anger and resentment and bitterness, uh, I would avoid that till there's a much deeper uh, emotional relationship between you and the person you're dating than to bring that stuff up anywhere near the, the beginning of the process. And I will tell you the following, it's a, it's a joke but I'll tell it to you anyway because uh, it, it, uh, it relates very much to this. 
uh, there's two jokes actually. One of them, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? It takes one therapist, it takes a long time. <laughs> and the, the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> we only change because we want to, right? So if, if my opening up about the help I've had, rehab, you know, uh, I went to chocolate rehab, let's say. Uh, I went to uh, whatever it was, AA, whatever it's been, uh, um, a, a food disorder, eating disorder, whatever, whatever it is, and I'm opening up, and, I, and the way I open up is not apology, is not timid, not f with weakness and I'm afraid how you're going to respond, but I'm opening up with from a point of strength. And how would you define that? I'm talking about someone else. It happens to be the same me, but I'm no longer that person. When the other person sees that you relate to that person differently than who you are today because you've grown so much and that you've let go, it's not about the past anymore, it's about me now and the future, that's where therapy has obviously worked. Meaning, meaning to say that if therapy is holding me to my past and keeping me in the memories of what I've gone through and what I'm remembering is how badly I was treated as my, uh, by my parents or my guardians or my divorced father three times over or my siblings, my older siblings, this and that and the more I've gone into the past I've become clear about it but I've also got I'm still angry and the more I'm finding out the more anger I've got about things that I haven't been resentful about people don't want to hear that and you know something I'm not really going to grow from that in Hebrew again Lashna Kodesh, God's holy tongue how many ways do you say why? there's two ways what are they? Lama and Madua. Why would God, with unlimited imagination, have the word why with two different words? It has to be that they're two different whys. Madua is not the same as Lama. Madua comes from the word Da, which means knowledge. Give me the information, give me the knowledge that helps me understand why I am who I am today based on what happened to me. Help me understand why my parents were this way, why my education was this way, why I was abused, what, it, what I went through, and that will give me the madua, why all this unfolded into who I am today. But Lama is a totally different why. It doesn't propel me into the past and dig up all the madua, the knowledge of how I came to be, Lama means Lama to what is all that I've been through leading me for? To what direction? For what fruitful purpose is this that I've been through? That's a totally different why. If the purpose of the direction of my therapy and the help that I've had is to propel me back into the past and dig it up and I become angry and resentful and bitter and it's still part of me I'm not really growing and no one really wants to hear about it except the guy who I'm paying. <laughs> but if it's about Lama, where I'm going to in the future, that's powerful. Because what you're telling the other person is look at what I've grown. Not because you want them to see how much I've grown, you're showing that this is what I went through and this is what I learned and this is what I have incorporated and become different because of what I've been through. And when you carefully study the personalities of our greatest leaders in Jewish history, male and female, we discovered that they all, without exception, came from the most abusive homes and backgrounds. It's amazing! Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. Sarah and Abraham raised in terrible homes. Lavan, the brother and father of, uh, the father of Rachel and Leah. Rachel, uh, Rebecca was born to love uh, Betuel, who was a, a, a sick man. Without going into details, these were people who were very low functioning. And look how the patriarchs and matriarchs, the founders of Judaism, came from these homes. And the answer is, it's not what we come from that makes us. It's how we respond to what we come from that makes us. They made different choices. When you demonstrate to your date that the choices you've been making and have made changed you, you'll probably win their admiration as opposed to uh-oh, this guy's real complex, I better stick away. So that's the two. And I'll end off on a joke and any other questions I'll take at the end. There was once three Jewish mothers, 
some of you heard this before, the way I say it's so funny anyway, so you'll like it anyway. <laughs> Mrs. Goshlevsky is telling Mrs. Horowitz, who's telling Mrs. Cohen how much their son shows them respect on their birthday. And Mrs. Goshlevsky is saying to Mrs. Horowitz, you want I should tell you how much my son shows me respect on my birthday? You don't want to know, but I tell you anything. <laughs> my son on my birthday, I hear a knock on the door, I open the door. And my son gives me a big hug, Mom, happy birthday! I said, you know what he does to me now? I open my eyes, I see at the end of the driveway a stretch limo, so stretch out. He takes me in the limo to the most expensive kosher restaurant in Manhattan, <laughs> and they're waiting for me. All my friends and family at a birthday party the whole night. <laughs> so special, this is my son, my birthday, how he shows me respect. And Mr. Horowitz, how does your son show you respect? Ah, oh, you don't want to know, but I tell you anyway. <laughs> my son, oh, he takes me on to JFK and puts me on the Concord. And two hours and 48 minutes later, I arrive in London in the Ritz Hotel. He takes me to the Ritz Hotel. These are the kings and queens and princesses. He takes me there and waiting for me in the hotel. All my friends and family from the whole world, we had a party the weekend. This is my son and my birthday so special. <laughs> and they both turned to Mrs. Cohen, who everyone knows has zero relationship with her son. They haven't been talking for years. The minus relationship. Uh, Mrs. Cohen, uh, how does your son show you respect on your birthday? Oh, my son. <laughs> he doesn't wait for no birthday to show me respect. My son. He pays $200 an hour, five times a week to his therapist, and all he talks about is me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.